One of my favorite things about teaching is giving tests. So I thought we'd start this morning with a test. How about that? Y'all like tests? All right. Does everybody got a Bible? Did it, do y'all carry Bibles or you just do everything on your phone? Carry Bibles. Awesome. All right. Find Matthew 1. Matthew 1. Okay. When you get there, say we're there. Okay. Now find Revelation 22. That's all the way at the back. You're there? Okay, here's the test. What is that section of your Bible called? The what? The New Testament. Who said it first? You did. What's your name? Laurel. Laurel said it first. All right, now, find John 21. You're already? You're there. Are you sure? Are you a middle brook? All right, that's why. You did Bible drills, didn't you? Huh? You did Bible drills growing up? Kind of? Okay. What is that section of Scripture called? The Gospels. That's exactly right. Now, look at those two things, and this is what's really cool. The Gospels are about one half of the New Testament. So one half of the New Testament is dedicated to the writings that record the life of Jesus Christ. That's That tells us a lot. It was written in four books, and we have four writers. And what, what are the four books, what are the four Gospels called? Okay, I know that's elementary, but you did that in elementary school, right? But you got it. Today we're going to briefly look at the third Gospel, which is the Gospel of Luke. Luke. Um, Luke is the only writer in the New Testament who isn't Jewish. And he's writing to an audience that isn't Jewish, so it kind of stands out as a unique gospel. And he writes about the things that Jesus did, and he writes about the things that Jesus said. And what's really neat is you start to look, as you start to study these passages of the things that Jesus said, sometimes he talks to thousands of people. And sometimes he talks to people as individuals. He speaks just one-on-one with folks. And what's really neat is Jesus has this way of in very few words getting to the need of the heart, getting to the issues of life in a very quick way. Now, Luke is called, sometimes called, the gospel of prayer. Because in that gospel, he tells a lot about prayer, about the things that Jesus said about prayer. Sometimes Luke is called the gospel of women. Because in Luke's gospel, more than any other gospel, he tells about the lives of the women who followed Jesus Christ and supported his ministry. But very interestingly, and something we're going to talk about today... Luke is also called the gospel of money. I'm going to get my water over here. Because in Luke, he records more about what Jesus has to say about money than any other gospel. So we're going to look at some of the things that Jesus says about money. In one instance, he comes up and he talks about... um, that it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven. Excuse me, it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is. You know, the little tiny eye in a needle. 
it's easier to get a camel through that eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says that. That's an interesting thing. He also says this. Hold on, let me catch up with my notes. He says it's easier, excuse me, he says the wrong attitudes about money can choke out the very word of God. It's the weeds that grow up around to keep us from receiving what God says in his word. And I'm going to illustrate this to you. I have a little bit of money in my wallet, and I'm going to give that to somebody this morning. Who would, anybody like a little money? What's your name? Ethan, Ethan come up here, Ethan. You have a little bunny this morning. <clears throat> All right, Ethan, I'm going to give you this bill. All right. Okay? Where are you, where are you from? Uh, here. South here. Carolina. Okay, from Greenville. Uh, Taylor's. Taylor's. Close enough. It's Greenville, man. Okay. <laughs> Ethan, can you tell me how much money that is? One million dollars. One million dollars. I'm going to give this to Ethan. And maybe Ethan will share a little bit with you. But here's the interesting thing that's going on in Ethan's mind right now. What would I do if I had a million dollars? How much would my life change if I had a million dollars? Did you think, were you thinking about that at all, Ethan? Or were you just amazed at the amount of money I was going to give you? It's a lot of money. And that money always has a pull on our heart. And that's what Jesus always addresses about money is this pull that money has on our hearts because we think that if we have some money, we have life. We have the ability to have life. We have something that can change our lives. And sometimes it will change your life, but not always for the better. All right, here, Ethan. Here's a million dollars. Everybody give Ethan a hand. All right. Now, since we just gave Ethan a million dollars, let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. And we're going to look at a warning. Look at verse 15. My pages are sticking together. All right, here we go. Verse 15. Jesus says there, And he said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. Jesus says, take care. He says, beware. He says, watch out. Guard your heart against one thing, greed. Guard your heart against greed. Why does he tell us this? Because greed is something that every one of us in this room are likely to fall into. It is something that we're likely to have trouble with. So he says, guard your heart about, against it. Greed, that Greek word we translate as Greek, really means an unquenchable thirst. You can never satisfy that thirst. Once you have something, you simply want more of it. That is greed. You want to keep what you have, but you also want what somebody else has to satisfy what you want. That's greed. Jesus says to guard yourself against it because the true life, 
the life that Jesus Christ offers, what he calls the abundant life, isn't made up of your possessions. That's why he says, guard your heart against it. Greedy people, they chase after things, they chase after money, and it will never satisfy them. Here's the interesting part about it. We don't wake up one day and say, you know what, today I think I'll start to be greedy. That's a good thing. I think I'll start to be greedy. Greed is like a weed in a garden. It grows very slowly, but before you know it, it's taken over the entire garden. And it takes over what's supposed to be there, what's supposed to be fruitful. It takes it over and it chokes it out. Greed is the exact opposite of the character of God. Greed keeps and it desires to keep and have more. That is selfishness. That's selfishness. If you had to say what God's character is like, God gives. He gives all. God the Father gave everything He could give in the gift of His Son. And His Son gave everything in giving His life to meet our need. And He calls us to do the very same. It is impossible. I tell you, it is impossible for a person to be selfish, for a person to be greedy, and say that they know Jesus Christ. Here's a test for you. If you want to see if you're greedy or not. Ask yourself. Do I enjoy things. More than I enjoy God. Do I enjoy things. More than I enjoy God. That's a good question. How about this one. Do I value things. More than I value. People. And relationships. We have to guard our hearts. And the best way to guard our hearts. Is to look into the word of God. About what Jesus Christ says. About our attitude at money. And to trust the Lord. With his word. To make that real to our hearts. So before we get into today's scripture. Let's bow. And let's ask him to do exactly that. Father we thank you for our opportunity today. To look into your word. And we're asking you, Father, for that work of your spirit, for us to hear your word, to see what it truly says, to see what your son revealed about our lives and what he revealed about who God is. We ask you, Lord, trusting you to bring this to our hearts, to produce something for your kingdom. And it's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. All right, turn in your Bibles to Luke 16. We're going to look basically at the whole chapter, but we're going to do it quickly. Luke 16. It's a chapter pretty much, the whole chapter is pretty much about money. And then to start the chapter, Jesus is teaching the disciples a parable. And this is the essence of the parable. People in the world... They know how to use money. They use money to produce more money. We call that profit. We call that gain. 
They are wise about money. They know how to use money, how to make money, and how to make more money. We call it profit. And the purpose of the financial system of the world is to produce, to make more money. And I'm telling you, people are very, very good at it. Here's something that just amazes you. You can't even think about these numbers. The United States gross domestic product, that means what it produces in one year time, is $25 trillion. I gave him a million. It takes it's $25 trillion. Who here has heard of the stock exchange? Anybody? I bet your parents are invested in the stock market to prepare for their future to care for themselves when they no longer work. That is worth, in 2020, the United States Stock Exchange was worth $90 trillion. The world knows how to make money. And Jesus says that his followers, the people who believe in him by faith and trust him, are to use their money for the purposes of God. The same effort that the world uses their money for its own gain, God says to use His money that He gives you for His gain. That is what we call stewardship. The money that we have, the money that you have, the money I have, it's not ours. It's the Lord's. And here's the startling thing. If you can't use his money today in this world the right way, Jesus says this, then you won't know, you won't possess the true riches, the riches in eternity. That's how telling the what money, our attitude about money is about the true character of our hearts. And to end this teaching to the disciples, he makes this statement in verse 13 of chapter 16. Look there. He says, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve money and God. Whatever controls you, Whatever you think about, whatever tells you what to do in your life, that's your master. The focus of your life, the center of your life, it's either money or it's God. And we're going to, that's what Jesus says. You can't be controlled by two things at one time. So that's what a master is. It is whatever controls you. And guess what? You choose your master. You choose who you love. You choose who you serve. You can serve God or you can serve money, but Jesus says you can't serve both, not at the same time. And that's where we're going to pick up in verse 14 with the beginning of our passage. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed Jesus. They were listening. He was teaching the disciples, but the Pharisees were listening to what he was saying and they ridiculed him. They laughed at what he said. They laughed at his teaching about the godly attitude that people were supposed to have about money. Because it was ridiculous what he said. Because to these men, money and wealth was a sign of God's approval. It was a sign of his approval. 
And here's what I want to tell you this morning. I understand where they're coming from. I do. So for just a few minutes, I want to tell you about my life before Jesus Christ changed me. And I bet the things that I tell you about myself, I bet you'll see a lot of those same things in yourself. When I was a boy, I bet, how many of y'all growing up in a Christian home? Good. I grew up just like y'all, exactly like y'all. In a Christian home, I was raised in church. I went to, we went to church every Sunday. And as a boy, as much as I could, I believed in God. I believed in Jesus. If you would ask me as a 10-year-old boy, are you a Christian? I'd have said, yes, I'm a Christian. I could tell you when I was baptized. I was baptized Christmas Eve 1972 when I was eight years old. That's when I was baptized. Was I going to heaven? Sure. I was going to heaven. But if heaven was anything like church, I really didn't want to go there. I just thought I wanted to go there because church was really boring. It was really boring. And the older I got, just like the weeds in that garden, the older I got, the farther and farther I moved away from God. When I was about 12 years old, my mama asked me to come to a Monday night meeting in this very room. And I sat right back there, right back around there, and I listened to probably the greatest preacher I've ever heard expound the word of God, and it didn't move me. It made absolutely no sense, the things that he said. My whole life, my father pressed me about one thing that was important, and that was my reputation. My reputation and my family name. I had to guard those two things. He said, don't lie, don't steal, keep the rules, and you'll guard your reputation. Well, here's the thing about a human heart. It didn't take me long to figure out as long as I got away with those things, my reputation stayed intact and my father was happy. I just didn't get caught. I could lie to anyone about anything. With a straight face. In, in school, in high school, to pass high school, I cheated just about on every test. I cheated. I remember, the, and the only time I got caught was in German class. I couldn't speak a lick of German. But somehow I made it through two years of it. Only got caught one time, and somehow I turned, I talked Frau Williams into somehow not telling my mom and daddy. And give me one more shot. And I cheated on that test too, but I passed. It's amazing. And the, the farther I went in life, the worse it got. It didn't get better. Y'all, I can remember back in middle school. I wanted to ride to middle school in a car that would impress everybody. That when I rode up to that middle school dance in the eighth grade, everybody would look at me. 
All I wanted to do was to be famous and to have money. And it came on to me from a very young age. Because I thought that money was the measure of success. But it didn't stop there. After college, I graduated and I moved into business. I grew a business. I worked really, really hard. And I got married. I had children. I attended church. And at 25 years of age, I was ordained as a deacon in my church. That, to me, was the pinnacle of people's opinion and reputation of me. Always on the outside, I was keeping the rules. I didn't drink alcohol because I was Baptist. Wasn't accepted in my church, so I kept that rule. And everybody thought a whole lot of me. On Sundays, I was very religious. I went to Sunday school, attended work church, but I never understood a word of it. I understood certain things, but I never really understood the heart of it. I remember the ultimate popularity was the day I was approved as a deacon, voted in. I'd reached the ultimate. I attended all the deacons meeting. And here's the thing that is the dead giveaway. I remember in those deacons meetings, every once in a while, I'd be asked to pray to either close the meeting or open the meeting. And here's the thing. All I did was say the words that everybody else said. And I could rearrange them and make them sound really pretty. But I was praying to myself, talking to myself, really hoping that what I said would impress everybody in the room. That's how far my heart was going. And of course, every Sunday on my envelope, I tithed. But here's the sad reason that I tithed. I thought if I gave God something, he would owe me. He would have to bless me. And I was scared not to tithe. And I was scared not to go to church because I was scared if I didn't, God wouldn't bless me. Monday through Saturday, I would curse. I'd tell obscene jokes. I'd look at women. I'm telling you, this is how bad it got. I would think through my mind how long I would have to live with my wife to guard my reputation until maybe my parents passed away before I could get rid of her. That's how far your life can drift. That's how far it can go. I would cheat people in business deals, and every Sunday morning I would say I was worshiping God. I remember I was thinking I should change churches, because if I went to a bigger church, I'd have more business opportunities. I'd have more opportunities to network. To the people at the church, I'd be religious. To the people in this world, I'd be profane. All you had to do was tell me which one I was going to gain the most at, and that was the person I was. That was the person I was. And looking back, the farther I went through life, the worse I got. You just keep pushing the truth out. You keep pushing the truth out. And maybe one day I'll change. I'll get better. But the problem is you never get better. 
And here's the worst part of all of it. I never knew I was lost. I was deceived. I thought I knew who God was. But I was living my life for myself, lost and on the way to hell. And Jesus, he puts his finger on that issue. He puts his finger on that problem in verse 15. That's what identifies it. Look at verse 15. In just a few words, Jesus tells them the issue. He says to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves before men. He's saying this to the Pharisees. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Jesus contrasts the Pharisees with the God. He says, with God, he says, you justify yourself. But God knows your heart. You keep his law before men. Men see the outside. They know the outside of what we are. But God knows what we are. He knows what we do. He sees our heart. He knows the truth. The things this world values, wealth, reputation, and position, the things that people prize, this passage says God abominates. He abominates it. And to tell you what this word means, think about Mr. Harris's house. A couple years ago before he moved into that house, a skunk crawled up underneath that house and it sprayed everything or it either died. I don't know which. But you couldn't go in that house. It was repulsive. You turned. That word abomination literally means this. To God, your life is a stench. He abominates what men prize. He abominates what people value. People prize the world to build up themselves. And God says, It is a stench. To justify yourself before men is an abomination to God. But that's thankfully not the end of the story. Here is the beauty of God. Here is the beauty of the person of Jesus Christ. He loves these men who oppose him at every turn in his ministry. He loves them. And Luke says it this way. God sent his son to do two things, to seek and to save that which is lost. And these men were lost. And so to save them, Jesus takes them to eternity. And I want to, I want to pick up there at verse 19. Let's read this passage together. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with swords, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, being in torment, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your life you received good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and between you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able And none may cross from there to us. 
And he said, I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone should rise from the dead. That's Jesus' parable. And it's divided into two parts. It's about the rich man and the poor man in their life in this world. And then we see the rich man and the poor man in their life in eternity. And let's look very, very, let's go all the way back to verse 19. Let's break it down. The rich man dressed up every day in purple and fine linens and he, and he feasted every day. That fabric, that purple fabric was the most expensive fabric in the ancient world. It was made, it was dyed purple by a, um, by using a sea snail. And it was very, very expensive to make and only the wealthiest people could afford to buy it. And he ate the best food. He ate the best food every day. And the Lord doesn't describe him as an immoral man. He's just living like rich people live. He's just using the things that rich people use. But his life is totally absorbed with himself. That's the issue. And then there's the poor man in this life. He laid at the rich man's gate. He was just thrown there. Literally, that's what the word means. Someone just threw him out and threw him there at the rich man's gates. It means to discard. And he's covered with sores. And he lays there at the gate and he dreams. He dreams of filling his stomach with the food that just fell off the rich man's table with his trash. That's how, what a bad situation he's in. Anything that would fill the hole in his stomach. But Jesus gives us a great detail about the poor man that he doesn't give us about the rich man. We know his name. And his name is Lazarus. That's the Greek form of the Hebrew word Eliezer. And it means this. It's translated this way. God, our help. What a strange name that Jesus gave this man. This poor man. God has helped. This man has nothing. He is sick. He's covered in sores. He can't care for himself. The dogs lick his sores. He can't care for them. And in his heart, he says, God, I know you exist. I know you have a plan for my life. And I trust you because that's faith. God, my help. Somewhere in his circumstances, he finds the ability to trust God. What an amazing man Lazarus was. Now, look at verse 22. Everything changes. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. The poor man died. He had no funeral. Probably when they found him dead, they just took his body and dumped it into the trash dump. But the rich man, he was honored. He was buried. But no angels. 
angels took Lazarus to Abraham's side. The rich man is in hell and he's in torment. And the poor man is in heaven. And the rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool off my tongue because I am in anguish in this flame. This is what's interesting to me about his request. He doesn't ask for buckets of water. He doesn't ask for a swimming pool. He asked for the very least. He asked Father Abraham to send Lazarus and take his finger, stick it in some water, and give him one drop. One drop. The least thing. And that kind of takes us back to their life on this earth. Because Lazarus longed for the very least thing the rich man could do. To give him the food that just fell off his table. And it's amazing. Everything in eternity has changed. Everything has switched places. The rich man knew something. He knew something. And I want you to keep that in your mind. But look at Abraham's response in verse 25. He says, child, remember. Child, remember. Abraham called the rich man a child. And the rich man called Abraham father. The rich man was Jewish. He was Jewish. And Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. And here's something that happened in the Jewish people. They believed that the righteousness of Abraham by his faith in God could be given to them because of their race. But here's the sad part. That wasn't true. It's appointed once for man to die and then the judgment. We all stand up on our own. Righteousness, except for the righteousness of Jesus Christ, can't be imputed person to person. That's impossible. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things. And Lazarus, like, like, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this between us, there is a great chasm fixed. Abraham says, remember your life. Remember your life. In other words, there was something. There was something the rich man could have done in his life to change this outcome. There was something he could have done. God gave the rich man opportunity. I want you to think about it. Every day, this rich man had to come in and out of his house, and Lazarus, this poor man, is laid right in his front doorstep. He had to literally walk around Lazarus to get in and out of his house. And God gave him that opportunity to show the compassion of his heart towards those who don't have, towards those who are the least. It was his opportunity to love the Lord, to fulfill the law by loving his neighbor. But instead, he spent himself, he spent his time dressed in purple robes, feasting sumptuously every day. And now it is impossible to change it. There's a great chasm fixed. It can't be changed. Verse 27, and he said, I beg you, Father, send him to my house. 
For I have five brothers so that he may warn them, so they may not come to this place of torment. But Father Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. The rich man had been warned in his lifetime. And the poor man had been warned in his lifetime. His family, his five brothers, had been warned in their lifetime through Moses and the prophets. I looked at many, many passages in the Old Testament about how people were to treat one another. And listen to this from Deuteronomy chapter 10. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, it says this. You are commanded to live trusting the Lord by caring for the widow, the orphan, and the stranger, and show them compassion by give them by giving them food and clothing. That's the command of the Lord. Take care of other people, and guess what? God will take care of you. That's faith. That's trusting the Lord. Verse 30, he says, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Do you remember John chapter 11? There's another man named Lazarus. And he was raised from the dead. But what was the reaction of the Jewish rulers and leaders? They not only wanted to kill Lazarus, but they wanted to kill Jesus. That was their response. They plotted to kill Lazarus and to kill Jesus. The rich man knew why he was in hell. He was in hell because there was never a time in his life when he repented. Now, I remember the day that I repented. I came here to the Evangelical Institute when I was 44 years old. And every day... I watched men and women live by faith in Jesus Christ. The things that I had in my possession, they didn't need. And the things that I needed, they had. That's what I saw. And as I would sit in class, I would hear story after story. Of this life of faith. And how it's lived. And I heard story after story. About Joseph Carroll. And this school. So I remember I went to an intern. And I said. Can you give me some messages from Joe Carroll. So I can listen to him. So sometime in that first trimester. As I was sitting in Mr. Nuremberg's class. Listening to Ephesians every day. I was also going home. And listening to the messages of Joe Carroll. And I remember the day I repented. I was walking around the block and I was listening to a message from Mr. Carroll on Matthew chapter 5 verse 3. It's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And to begin that sermon, Jesus says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They owned as a possession the kingdom of heaven. But I had no idea what it meant to be poor in spirit. And Mr. Carroll explained that. He said, Jesus is speaking about the person who has entered, has ended the life that is centered on themselves. To have a new life that is centered on Jesus Christ. That person who has done that is the blessed person in the sight of God. That's the blessed person. 
And they have heaven as their possession. Jesus, in that verse, takes people to eternity. In the very first message that he ever preached in Matthew. Mr. Carroll said, that person who has repented has turned their back on the resources of this world to satisfy them, to have Jesus Christ for their every need. That is faith. That is faith. But I remember what gripped me. Mr. Carroll said this. He said, you'll never have Christ's life as long as you find life in yourself. You won't have it. You can think you can, but you'll be deceived. You can think you can have one, or one, but you can't have both. You can either have life in yourself and you're responsible for yourself, or you can have life in Jesus Christ and He's responsible for you. Here's the reason why God has determined that Jesus Christ will be everything. No flesh, nothing I do, nothing you do, will ever glory before God. And that day, listening to that message, I finally repented. From that point, I said, Jesus, if you will have me, And if you will save me, I give you my life. You have it all. You have everything. And from that point, my life changed. When I woke up in the morning, Jesus was the first thought on my mind. All day long, he's what I thought about. And at the end of the day, I thought about him. And I'm here to testify to you this morning, it has never changed. My circumstances have changed, but he's never changed. He's faithful if you give him your life. But here's what I want to press on you this morning. Here's what I regret That didn't happen until I was 44 years old. And I wasted decades serving myself. Instead of serving God. And there's a price to be paid for that. There's a price. I don't want you this morning to be deceived. I don't want you to think you can find life somewhere else or in something else. If you can do anything, God knows your heart. If you can do anything this morning, be honest with him. And be honest with yourself. Don't profess to be a Christian unless you really know Jesus Christ. Don't do it. It doesn't matter about your baptism. It doesn't matter about what you say. It's what the Spirit of God tells you in your heart if you're His. I really like the name of this conference, Totally His. That's what it means to repent. That's what it means to turn from yourself and to turn to God.
We can't be half in. It's impossible. So this morning, let's pray, and then we'll end our session. We have about 15 minutes until class was, until the next session at 10 o'clock. Father, we ask you for that work which you alone can do. By your word, taken by your spirit, we see ourselves as we truly are. I pray, Father, as we are bowed before you, that we'd also see the potential of new life in Jesus Christ. Father, whatever you lead us to this morning, lead us to the fact that we have to be honest with you and deal with you because you are making a call upon our lives. Father, I ask you, just as we have asked for months for these young people, that you would raise up a new generation of believers to be your church and to take your name near and far that Jesus Christ would be known and that he would be worshipped. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.